following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of June 21st, 2022. On this week's show, ESPN's Greg Wyshynski will join us to talk about the Stanley Cup Finals, where the Tampa Bay Lightning are going for their third title in a row against the Colorado Avalanche's offensive juggernaut. We'll also discuss ESPN's new documentary, Dream On, about the 1996 U.S. women's Olympic basketball team. And upon its 50th anniversary, you know, allegedly 50th anniversary, we'll get into that, uh, we'll assess the past, present, and future of Nike. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Also in D.C. is Stefan Fatsis. He is the author of the books Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, and Wild and Outside. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. And with us from California, Slate staff writer, host of seasons three and six of the hit podcast, Slow Burn. It's Joel Anderson. Hey, Joel. Yo, what's up, man? I got to say, you guys killed it last week with Vincent. Your segment on Hustle made me watch it immediately. As soon as I was done with the podcast, I fired that up. Would you say that you showed any kind of verve or enthusiasm? What's the word for kind of what um, you undertook to watch that movie? Oh, tremendous uh, elan. It was a real spirit of a line. I had a little frisson of excitement. <laughs> um, Paroxysm of glee. It was great, too. I agree with the three of you. That, that was, it was awesome. Yeah. What, what was it that Vincent said? He was going to watch it six times? By the he said five the times. He said right. five times. All right. We'll so have Stephen, to check in and see where he is at this point. He's got a week to go. Stefan competitive like Kermit Wiltz. <laughs> <laughs> Going into Game 3 of the Stanley Cup Finals, the Tampa Bay Lightning were down 2-0 in the series and coming off a humiliating 7-0 Game 2 loss to the Colorado Avalanche. But on Monday night, back in the warm and cozy but also frozen confines of Florida, where they haven't lost all postseason, the two-time defending champs bludgeoned the Avalanche 6-2, an offensive onslaught that led the Avs to pull their goalie and led the hockey commentariat to proclaim, as commentariats often do, it's a series again. Joining us for the first time in a long time, it's Mr. Hockey Commentariat, ESPN's <laughs> Greg Wyshynski. Hey, Greg, it's a series again. It's a series again. Well, I mean, in fairness, like usually when we say this, it's because, you know, there's been a couple of tight games and a bounce has gone the wrong way or whatever. Uh, and in this one, it was a, a 7 nothing evisceration in game two. So if you were somebody who believed that the Colorado Avalanche were a steamroller with buzz saws for wheels. Uh, I think you could probably be excused for that. But I myself felt that the uh, Lightning had a better than good chance to uh, get back into the series. I had seen them in previous rounds on home ice. They had the uncanny ability of uh, not only playing well here, but also adjusting to the problems that they've had here against previous opponents. So I was pretty sure that we were going to get uh, a series again, as it were. And so, get some uh, fortunate goals, too, against the Rangers in the previous round. You know, they, they were losing in Game 3, I think, and Game 4 was very close. They benefited from some good fortune, um, though in Game 3 of this series, there was no good fortune that was required. 
Well, I, I think in the case of the Lightning in the previous few rounds, uh, I, I think you could adopt the uh, Billy Zane philosophy from Titanic, which is that they make their own luck. Um, if we're talking about who's been lucky, I mean, the Colorado Avalanche on their way to the Stanley Cup final played a Nashville Predators team that didn't have their starting goalie and was gutted for it. That's a sweep. Uh, played the St. Louis Blues. We're in a spot of trouble. The Blues lose their starting goalie to injury because um, Nazem Kadri collides with them. Uh, they win that series in six. And then they play the Edmonton Oilers, who are a team that only has two ways to win. And their names are Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. And Leon Dreisaitl had a high ankle sprain. He was about like 20% of himself. And they sweep them. So <laughs> we're talking about like who's gotten the breaks along the way. I think it's probably the Avalanche more so than the uh, Lightning. But I think in both cases, they've earned their way here. In the write-up of last night's game, Greg, you, you wrote that uh, a team that looked like it was going to get skated out of the series suddenly was able to match the Avalanche's energy. And I always think about that when we talk about, man, a team had to summon some energy to you know make a final stand here. So I'm, I'm wondering, was Monday night in Tampa, was that a champion's response Right. Like, you know, just a, t- a, a, a team down to a death rattle, like gutting it out. Or was it truly indicative of a team that has the potential to mount real resistance to what seems like a juggernaut? So you're asking if it's a temporary uh, heartbeat or whether a, the, the, there's a resurrection we're witnessing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's a little bit of both. You know, Stephen Stamkos, their captain, said after the game uh, that they had to respond. Like, there was no doubt about it. Like, if they don't respond, they're obviously not going to be winning the series if you get down 3 nothing, um to almost any opponent, no matter if it's the Colorado Avalanche or not. So from that aspect, I do think that there was a, a bit of backs-against-the-wall survival mechanism that was going on. But the thing that you heard from the Lightning, even after that Game 2 debacle in Denver, was we're confident if we get to our game that we can mitigate some of the things that the Avalanche do really well. And the problem in the two games in Denver was that they couldn't get to their game because the game was like over in the first 10 minutes, right? In both cases, they were down by multiple goals in the first 10 minutes of these games. Um, it, it was deficits of their own making. They took really bad penalties at the beginning of both games. So their thought process was, we can be in these games, we can beat these guys if we can build on the things that we're trying to do early in the game, establish a little bit of proof of concept, and they won't say it, but most importantly, get a lead after the first period. They're 7-1 and one now when they lead after the first hmm. period, and I think it really... The, the key to, the, to beating the Avalanche is not to chase them, but to have them chase the game a little bit. And I think for the first time in the series, the Lightning were able to, to do that. And it has everything to do with the way they started the game. So the Avalanche are far from a one-man team, but the one name that gets mentioned first when you talk about them is Nathan McKinnon. And he has a couple of assists in the first three games. Um, It's not something anybody was particularly concerned about after game one and two, I would say. Um, But for folks who aren't familiar, just like what is it about him that makes him the kind of bold-faced name for the Avalanche? And also, has there been anything kind of has he been a problem or is he not played up to his potential? Does he need to do something different for the Avalanche to win the cup? I'll start on the gameplay part of it. I mean, his line with Gabe Landeskog and Val Nikushkin, um, and also when they move up Mika Rantanen in Nikushkin's place, which is the line that um, traditionally McKinnon and Landeskog have played on in the last couple of years and has been one of the most dominant ones in the NHL. That 
when he's on the ice, uh, they're out shooting and out, out, out attempting the lightning by a preposterous margin. So he's not getting the goal scoring results yet in the series, but it'll come. And I don't think that anything that's gone on is the fault of that line, nor is it the fault of his play on the power play and the power play in the series. I think the Lightning have now given up five power play goals to the Avalanche in three games. And a lot of that is, is the work that McKinnon does. What makes him special is twofold. One, he's an incredibly powerful skater. And he is, like a, a number of guys in this generation, a player who has the ability to create offense at full velocity and get his shot off in a variety of ways as he's in full velocity. He's a tremendously gifted shooter and goal scorer. And he also, much like Alex Ovechkin, is somebody who deals in volume. He's a, a shot volume guy. And, uh, and it's one of the things that I think uh, separates him from other goal scorers, is just how many shots he takes and how many find their target. He's also a real nut off the ice uh, in the sense of being one of the single most intense individuals I think I've ever seen. Uh, when it comes to the drive to succeed, watching a Nathan McKinnon post playoff press conference when the Avalanche have fallen short is like watching a Joy Division concert. <laughs> it's just like a sullen and like <laughs> despair filled uh, affair. Uh, he's famous for um, behind the scenes being someone who is a constant driver of uh, of 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 effort from his teammates in practice. He never takes a practice off. Um, he's infamous for his diet and enforcing his diet on others and shaming teammates for eating sugar. Um, I don't know if you guys watch the boys on Amazon prime. There's a little Homelander, I think in Nathan McKinnon, but, uh, <laughs> but he's, he's a tremendously gifted athlete. And, um, and, and I know if they, if they do end up winning the cup, it'll, it'll be really nice to see him finally be able to exhale. This team is one of the most prolific scoring teams in a long time in an era or a new era of prolific scoring in the NHL. Um, and you would think that that would be determinative in a final like this. Like in game two, you throw up seven goals, that should be demoralizing. But goaltending is always the equalizer in NHL playoffs, right, Greg? And and in this case, the Avalanche have two 32-year-old dudes um, who are really kind of backups on other teams versus the Lightning who have the best goaltender on the planet. How much going forward does that factor into the way players think about the games to come and the, the knowledge that, hey, we've got the best goaltender and they don't? I, I, so I think Darcy Kemper is a starter in this league. Like he, he came from the Arizona Coyotes. He was a starter there. He, he's, you know, the, the reason he's on the Avalanche was a sort of a, a desperate play where their starting goaltender last year, Philip Grubauer, unexpectedly left for the Seattle Kraken. And um, they were all of a sudden at the end of the goalie carousel that was spinning last summer. And so they had to kind of make a desperation move to get Kemper. And he, for half the season, wasn't very good. And then for like January 1st on, he was kind of the second best goalie in the NHL behind Igor Shashurkin statistically. So they came into the playoffs pretty confident about him. But everyone I talked to in the goalie analytics community isn't really in love with him. And I kind of felt that... Can we just pause on the phrase goalie analytics community? <laughs> yeah, can, can, well, continue, continue. So so let me, let me sidebar. You have the analytics community that measures the abilities of skaters and you know forwards and defensemen. 
But those analytics do not account for the skill of goaltenders. And there's an entire thriving uh, community of, in, in many cases, ex-goalies that want to quantify how goaltenders really play. Statistically, goaltenders have been left in the dust when it comes to how you measure their success. I mean, that's why, like, the goalie with the most wins usually wins the best goalie award. Um, so, yeah, there's a whole community that breaks it down for you and is really smart about it. And they'll tell you that Kemper has not really been that great. He's one of these guys that's been kind of living off his reputation. Um, to your, to your point though, like, yeah, the, the biggest advantage in the series was Andre Vasilevsky, who, if he wins this cup, it, no matter what happens to him statistically in the series, is going to go down as one of the greatest postseason goalies in hockey history, um, versus these two guys on the avalanche. And so what you saw in game three of the series was, while they only managed 16 shots on goal against Kemper in game two, because the avalanche just controlled play and possessed the puck and, and the lightning only got uh, 29% of the shot attempts in the game. They finally got to their game. They finally put pressure on the guy and he was a piece of Swiss cheese. So like, you know, in the two games in which they've been able to actually mount an offense against Darcy Kemper, they have scored nine goals. And so they have to be pretty confident about that and also be, pretty happy with the way that Vasilevsky rebounded from giving up seven goals in game two. Uh, Greg, more broadly, I mean, you're, you're obviously at the arena on game nights, so you're not watching this on TV, but um, obviously like the NHL has benefited from this no longer being on whatever, I guess, was it NBC sports? I don't know if that was the name, the, the channel that it was on before. And now it's on, uh, you know, uh, your, your employer ESPN. And um, there's a belief that this matchup, being on TV when it is with these teams, this great avalanche team and like a defending champion, you know, going for its third, going for a three peat is really good for the game. Um, you're there. Like, it, it, is that it all true? Like, because it, it, I, I, mean, I, it's weird. I, I lived in Tampa for four years and like nobody thinks of Tampa is like a major market or anything like that. I don't know, you know, <laughs> you know, what sort of fan base, how that translates nationally, but like, is there a sense that, this year is like a sort of a breakthrough year for the NHL and the Stanley Cup, um, having these two teams playing when they are on the channel that they are. Well, first of all, I'll put some love on NBC Sports Network, my favorite place for classic car auctions. RIP. <laughs> remember, remember your legacy. I, I think they had a show um, with Michelle Beadle and somebody too once. Uh, I, I was, I was, I was, I was on that show. Okay, so uh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Remember when the games were on Versus? Oh, I do remember that. Real ones know that it was the Outdoor Life Network before it was versus. So uh, it was. <laughs> it's been. A, but that's that to, to, to speak to your point. You mentioned these two teams, and you mentioned the TV aspect of it. And again, like the the, the folks on NBC did a really good job. Like they 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 presented the game as best they could. Um, they could only do as much as they were given. Um, one of the great things about working at ESPN is that the minute that the rights come over to our network. There's just incredible investment in things outside of the game. It's the point that we have a weekly, you know, news magazine show. It's, it's the content on Sports Center. It's me. I, they gave me a show to do a pregame show on digital, um, this season that I, that I helped create. Like there's all of these other opportunities that come with being on ESPN that I think have really benefited and, and, and exposed the game to a wider audience. But you mentioned the two teams and I think the two networks is a really big thing for me. Like no matter what my issues were or anybody's issues were with NBC. The biggest issue was that the NHL had a, a monolithic rights deal while every other major sport in the United States was on multiple networks and multiple networks means multiple audiences, 
where like if you're watching PTI, you're going to see an advertisement for the NHL. If you're watching AEW wrestling or, you know, Rise of Skywalker on TNT or what have you, then you're going to see an, an NHL commercial. And like reaching out to all of these new audiences is, is such an important thing. And that's like one of the big aspects of the rights deal that I love. As far as the matchup goes, I think the, first of all, the, the Lightning have a really, really, really strong local following. Um, and they've cultivated it. And the, the Avalanche have an incredible local following that has now done the thing that a fan base, in my opinion, needs to do in order to become really rabid, which is to live and die with your team through playoff failures. Um, the Avalanche won the Stanley Cup last in 2001. They've struggled to get past the second round for, I think, four consecutive seasons. So you have a lot of people that are like, I know this team is good. And now we're finally breaking through. And so being in Denver for those games was incredible just to see how the community has like popped for this team. And the Lightning, the, the Avalanche actually aren't, in my opinion, the biggest draw, even though they've got some star players. The Lightning, though, now that we've seen them in back-to-back cup finals and win and have come to know these players and these personalities a little bit more, I think, I, I do think that they're one of the bigger draws in the NHL insofar as like casual fan interest. And especially when you're dealing with the potential for history and seeing a, a three-peat. Just a, a quick sidebar that I do not expect Greg to respond to, given his employment situation. But some some would note <laughs> some would note that all of the stuff that ESPN has uh, done since they've gotten the rights, it's like okay, well, it it just shows what ESPN was not doing when ESPN did not have the rights, and there's just like it, it's just a huge difference in terms like uh, a fan like me who's not. Um, a regular NHL viewer, just like the amount of NHL stuff that gets served to me when it's coming through the ESPN firehose versus when it's not, it's like a huge, it's a huge, huge difference. Yeah. And we talked about this. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, Josh, with women's softball. If ESPN chooses to invest money in cameras and personnel, people are going to watch because of the platform. Yeah, well, it's almost like that's why the NHL wanted to go to ESPN. Those <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and, 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 and again, like, go back you know, to the ESPN. Board of yeah. Go back to ESPN, right. The, the board of governors and, and the people that, that own the teams have always been in favor of trying to get back on ESPN. They understand the value to it. And I think, um, and if we're being honest, like there was a certain amount of loyalty that the NHL had to NBC because NBC took the rights after the lockout in, uh, in 2005. And, and the, the sport was in a very different, the league, I shouldn't say the sport, the league was in a very different place. And so for, for, um, NBC to get into business with them then, I think that you know, in particular, Gary Bettman, the commissioner, felt a certain amount of loyalty there. But again, like, I think there's always been a push within the, within the, the board of governors, within the teams, within the NHL front offices to get back on ESPN because they understand the value of that for exposing the sport to, you know, casual sports fans. All right. Um, before we go, I have a, a lightning round question, but in fairness, I will also give you an avalanche round question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so lightning rounds and and the, I I demand lightning on this. Why um the the two the two big stories are number one, why no Canadian team in the cup for a, a million years? What's the what's the two sentence Wachinski theory? First of all, only on this show would it be a lightning round, and it's a why question. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> you have identified our uh, ethos specifically very well, Greg. Um, 
a lot of it, you know, honestly, I'll give you a theory that I've heard multiple times, which is that the pressures of playing in a Canadian market are just significantly higher than playing in an American market. Mm. And so you have teams that are brilliantly constructed, like the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, we've seen Vancouver make runs. I mean, other teams have made runs. And um, for whatever reason, you know, they can't get over the hump. It's sometimes not even out of the first round. So Canadian so. teams are soft, is the theory. Okay. Um, or, or, or the Canadian media is like a hell of a lot harder, which I think is also a competing theory. All right, avalanche round question. Um, you published a story in April on the goal scoring onslaught in which you shared nine theories. Too many theories, Greg. Ten. About what? Ten theories. No, the tenth theory was actually goal scoring isn't up that much. Which oh, that, is, was yeah. okay. that was number ten. Okay. That was number ten. That was number ten. Yeah. So out of these nine theories, which of these theories do you actually believe? <laughs> versus um, you know think, the rest you're just trying to create content i mean come on oh I, there's listen there i i keep it real there is absolutely uh, no uh false notes that i ring <laughs> in my analysis to try to try to generate clicks as uh, twitter tells me um by the way you can't generate a click if you don't include a link in the tweet i just want to point that out to anybody right now. It's an essential thing don't accuse somebody of doing it for the clicks if there's something to click of those theories well first of all i do think that there is a generational shift happening where um you have incredibly talented players that are coming into a league that is more welcoming for players of different sizes um i was speaking with uh matt savoie who is a, a, a prospect for the um nhl draft next month and I would say generously he's 5'8", and he's probably going to go in the top 15. Like, there, there are so many, because of the style of play is no longer so physical and, 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 and punishing and we don't have fighting and goons as much, um, it's really opened up the game for a variety of new offensive players. And the philosophy of the league has changed to foster those players and their skills. And then as far as, like, all the other theories, a lot of them kind of just all add up. I mean, I do think that this season in particular, it's undeniable that there was a pandemic effect. Um, you had players leaving the lineup and coming back into the lineup because of COVID diagnoses. Um, we had the most goaltenders we ever had play in the league in a single season play this year. So there's a lot of reasons why the averages are up. But the thing that is the real shocker, um, and we, we touched on it in that, in that story, is that it's continued in the playoffs. Like, as you, you mentioned many, many questions ago, the playoffs <laughs> are famous for, uh, goaltending and they're famous for defense. They're, they're famous for margins being so close. If you told me that the lightning won game three of the Stanley Cup final after losing game two, seven to nothing, I would assume it was a two one game with Vasilevsky making 35 saves or whatever. It was six to two. You know, so there has been a fundamental shift offensively here. 22 goals combined I, through game three most since 1982. Yeah. It's wild. So there's definitely something that's changed here, um, stylistically and, and fundamentally in this league. And again, like you talk about networks and matchups and all this other stuff. If you're averaging as many goals per game as the NHL is this season in the playoffs and in the regular season, that's, that's the seed change. That's the thing American audiences Which leads to the last forever. question. And you have, this has to be lightning round answer, but. Are we sort of approaching the platonic ideal of what hockey should be? Are we approaching in the NHL a league with the narrower rinks and the more cluttered play and the more fighting and hitting compared to Olympics or international hockey? Is this sort of appealing and are fans responding in a way that, you know, that's positive toward the more freewheeling, open, centralized, high-scoring game? 
I think that you are reaching the the platonic ideal for the millennial fan and the Gen Z fan. I think you are creating a new sport in the eyes of an internet old like me. And I've had to come to grips with that. It's a different league. You know, I, like most people, will tune in to watch the uh, 30 for 30 uh, ESPN documentary on the Red Wings avalanche rivalry, which will just be blood on the ice and fights between goalies that comes out, I think, next weekend. Um, and I will revel in it because that is the league I grew up in. And and so I've come to grips with the idea that hockey and my ideal of hockey, which is probably a little bit more intense and violent than the current product might not exist exist again. The current product as it stands is probably the best honeypot for attracting new fans versus the old style of, of what I grew up with. ESPN's Greg Wyshynski is one of our favorites. It's so nice to have you back, Greg. <laughs> it's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Up next, we'll talk about ESPN's latest 30 for 30 documentary, Dream On, from the 1996 U.S. Women's Olympic Basketball Team. After finishing with the bronze of the 1988 Summer Olympics, the U.S. Men's National Basketball Team responded with a show of force that changed basketball forever. Four years later, the so-called dream team of Michael Magic Larry and eight other NBA legends and Christian Leitner defeated opponents by an average of 44 points en route to reclaiming the gold medal. At those same games in 1992, the U.S. women's national basketball team failed to win gold for the second time in four Olympics. The Americans lost in the semifinals to the former Soviet Union, then playing under the banner of the unified team, and finished with the bronze. The program's failures continued in 1994. Here's a clip. 1994, as the men's team was winning the gold medal at the first world championship NBA players participated in Toronto, the women quietly lost again. Brazil has won it by three, 110-107. I said, holy can't believe they lost. They lost to Brazil. If 92 is a stunner, 94 was a slap in the face. The USA will play Australia for the bronze. The only bronze medal I ever have, I have no idea where it is. Yeah, that sucked. The voices you heard there were longtime WNBA commissioner Val Ackerman, ESPN's Michelle Vopel, and basketball legend Lisa Leslie. What happened after 1992 and 1994 is the subject of the latest ESPN 30 for 30 documentary, Dream On, which tells the story of how the women's national team overhauled its program and ultimately laid the foundation for the WNBA. Josh, Dream On was released as part of ESPN's 5050 initiative commemorating the 50th anniversary of the passing of Title IX. Prior to this, there were a number of documentaries and shows dedicated to the 92 men's dream team, and this was the first that I can remember that focused on the women's team. How much of their story did you know before watching this 30 for 30? Not much. I mean, kind of flashes of it came back as I was watching the doc. Um, this is a team that barnstormed around the country and the world and ended up after 
the winning the Olympic gold medal with a 60 and 0 record. And there was a kind of like, oh yeah, I, I remember when that happened. But um, this team's importance to the founding of the WNBA, also the ABL, which kind of goes unmentioned in this um, documentary, the kind of the other women's pro league. Um, and what you described in the introduction there, Joel, the kind of similar storyline that led to the creation of the men's dream team, this kind of decline narrative around what's wrong with America, we're losing to the rest of the world, we got to um, change this. And the ways in which that played out differently for the women compared to the men, Stefan, is really interesting. And I also think just the 90s um, are a very important and fascinating time for women's sports. There's the the legendary 1999 um, Women's World Cup winners for the United States. Um, and there is this emphasis now on um, the 50th anniversary of Title IX. And we've talked about with the Lucy Harris documentary, The Queen of Basketball, the very early pioneers in women's basketball. But these women in the 90s, kind of along the lines of the women's soccer players in the 90s, have their own story and are just as important on the trajectory that we've um, seen into the 21st century. Yeah, and I think what's important about these women, and that's a really good point you make, Josh, is that this is part of the timeline of the evolution of women's sports. If the 70s was, you know, the legal foundation for being able to play, and the 80s was the sort of experimental period where there wasn't that much, but you were starting to get more attention. The 90s was the sort of the the time when marketing and social conscience met their moment. Um, there was more money to go around. Leagues like the WNBA, uh, like the NBA, led by David Stern and his and, and Russ Granick, who was the deputy commissioner, uh, and Val Ackerman, who was an official with uh, U.S. women's basketball at the time. There was this recognition that, hey, maybe we can actually make something of this commercially, financially, that maybe there's money to do this. And it takes these breakout moments like the gold medal in 96 and like the women's soccer uh, World Cup championship in 99 to push the narrative farther forward and get more money into the sport and encourage more girls to play these sports and sort of set the groundwork for the legendary athletes um, who would follow them in the next couple of decades. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting. I was thinking of, um, you know, Rick Welts, for instance, who was, you know, worked at the NBA and was foundational and building this team and helping to set up the WNBA. And they briefly covered how much or how little money the players on the team actually made. Yeah, 50000 for the whole year. Yeah, 50000 for the whole year. And he said, well, that's just the money that we had, right? Um, that, that was the money that was available. And I, I thought to myself, man, that's really glib. Um, and I, it, it made me sort of resent that they seem so uh, pat about their role in setting up the league, that the, like they were doing some sort of altruism or something. But then if I go back to that time, and I, and, I, and I sort of put myself in that moment, I was like, you know what? They kind of were. I mean, I guess I don't want to like overstate their role in building out women's basketball, but like it cannot be ignored that at the time, it wasn't even really something that you know, prior to that, people had even taken a real serious swing at. Because one of the interesting things, if you go back and you look at like all these other 
failed startups like the All-American Redheads, which was a barnstorming team, or the Women's Basketball League that Nancy Lieberman played in. And I mean, Nancy Lieberman has played in basically every fucking basketball league there is, right? <laughs> um, or the Liberty Basketball Association, which was bas- broadcast on ESPN and had them playing in bodysuits. Um, it was this, you know, sort of like maybe the precursor to the lingerie football league. Um, I mean, it, those, the, the spandex uniforms they're wearing, I couldn't believe that that had happened in the nineties. Like, yeah. Did you it, remember that? I didn't crazy. remember that. Yeah. Didn't, well, the Australian women's basketball team has worn similar uniforms. I mean, it might be cultural, but they have been much after, long after that. That's true. I mean, I guess the thing. All right, Stefan. Stefan, the, the defender of the Liberty Basketball. Oh, I'm not team. defending the, the outfits. I'm just right. pointing out that sexism and, you know, trying to sexify the, the women athletes um, knows no borders. Right. So, so even circling back to that, I thought about Rick Welts, you know, sort of taking, you know, making the comment that that was the money that was available. And I was a little resentful of it. But then I was like, you know what? To that point, nobody had ever made a real attempt at selling women playing basketball, like not without gimmicks, just like an appreciation of the game for all these great players and giving them a venue here domestically. And I was like, you know what? They should take a bow for that. Not so much of one. I mean, I don't think that they should, you know, be that happy about everything that they did. And there's still a lot, a lot of ground to gain here. But um, it was sort of revolutionary at the time. It was. Um, and I think it's hard to tell whether it was intentional or inadvertent genius. But um, that winning streak, I think, was really important in creating interest in the team sort of like how interest in women's college basketball has spiked whenever there's a dominant UConn team um the fact that they were not just like the men's dream team which already had this kind of built up reservoir of fascination and and intrigue due to the players popularity in the NBA and they did I, I think some exhibitions and stuff going to the Olympics but like they just basically showed up kicked everyone's asses and um, and, and that was that, but to kind of build up fascination and intrigue, these women, some of whom like Cheryl swoops, who had scored scores 47 points in the national title game for Texas tech in 93 plays briefly overseas and then comes home and is like working in a bank. I mean, this, again, this is the nineties. Like yeah. it, it's, it's crazy to right. remember that. Right. I mean, Lisa Leslie didn't want to go overseas. Um, UConn barely had any fans until they won their first national championship. What was it in 95? Um, yeah. So, so the, so the point is that, you know, not only did these women need to come together to actually like get some run and play, some games, but like there was a a kind of like enigma mystery around like what is even what does it even look like for um, a team of the best women's players in the country to actually play together, go around, unify, and and like what does that even look like? And once they started putting up these score lines and putting up this winning streak, and not only. I think paved the way for the WNBA by showing as they went around the country that they could draw crowds, um, but did draw interest in them as the Olympics came. Because like the thing about the Olympics for women athletes, Stefan, is it's like a rare showcase where these women's sports are in some ways on, um, you know, there, there's parody there just because all we care about is gold medals. And so if women win gold medals, like, hey, women's sports are great. Um, but there's a huge amount of competition 
there, there's just like everything um, is on at all times. And so to, it, and women's basketball has often gotten short shrift on television. Um, and, and so having that built up intrigue and interest, both because they had lost before, but also just because they had spent a year traveling the world, I think was hugely important. Oh, it was. And, and as a marketing proposition, it was really smart. The Olympics were in Atlanta, so they were going to be in the United States. Um, there was this void in terms of opportunities for some of the women. You had to go overseas, and they were getting paid well. It's, and it's not dissimilar from today, where women's getting basketball paid players... Than they were getting paid by USA Basketball. They were getting paid $50,000 by USA Basketball, but they were turning down salaries of 100000 or more to play overseas. Um, so they did have to make this sacrifice. And what I appreciated about this film is uh, it was directed by Kristen Lapis, whose dad, Steve Lapis, was a college basketball coach, former, um, was that it didn't try to turn this into sort of a sepia-toned Title IX movie, that this is told as a serious... Um, story with with conflict and upset and dissatisfaction among the players. This is not a feel-good documentary. Um, Richard Deitch has a review on the in the Athletic about the the documentary, and he tells a story about how Kristen Lapis wrote a um, has a post-it that she had on her desk that said, "Don't make this film soft." And what I meant by that note, she says, is more often than not, when people tell women's sports stories, they're kind of flowery and rah-rah and girl power. I wanted to make sure that people really understood that this wasn't a clean, happy story. There were complications, there was tension, there was conflict. And that really starts to come out, and I think in the second episode, Joel, where you see the the dissatisfaction among some players with the coach, Tara Vandeveer, mm-hmm. who left Stanford, where she was an established, if young, uh, women's basketball coach, to take over this team for the full year. Um, and particularly, and I didn't remember any of this, if I knew it ever, that Rebecca Lobo was treated as this untalented outsider who didn't belong on this team, who was there because she was white, and she was from UConn, and she was perceived as the sort of palatable face of women's basketball. Yeah, no, and they also, I mean, they even touched on the anti-gay um, sentiment yeah. there, um, you know, that had hindered the, the opportunities of some other players before, and even their marketing opportunities. And I was really impressed that they dove into that. But about the Tara Vanderveer thing, I actually thought about that a little bit, and you know, obviously it was a different time, the 90s and the way that we thought of coaches and how they dealt with players then. Like that behavior, that treatment of players was a little bit more acceptable in that moment, right? But it also reminded me of how so many, how so often there's room for exploitation in these national programs, right? That you know, you've got these exploitation of athletes, they've got low pay, terrible work conditions, not many other options, and then they're subject to like a tyrant or somebody that can abuse them pretty much in any way they see fit. We've seen that in gymnastics, we've seen that in all, in, in, in some, in swimming, so many other sports. And I, I'm, I'm glad it didn't happen here. It didn't appear to, that doesn't come up. I haven't seen uh, the third episode yet. So maybe that, maybe I'm missing something, but, um, you know, I, I I think I would have liked a little bit more uh, introspection from Tara Vanderveer, the, the the head coach here, about how she treated those players because she sort of was just like, well, I probably shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have treated Rebecca Lobo right. like that. Um, but I, you could just see where there's an opportunity here where it 
it placed in the wrong hands that these players could have gone through so much worse than they already did. Cause it did not, it did not have to be that way. Like obviously you can build a good team, a great team, a program that is, you know, going to be the best in the world without treating the players in quite the way they were treated um, in the build up to the 96 well, there, there, Olympics. Josh, there's a level of acquiescence among the players toward marketing them and dressing them up in feminine clothes and trying to make them into something that they weren't. You can see the discomfort in a lot of the footage. And we should mention that this film got made because there was 500 hours of footage that the NBA had shot behind the scenes that was barely used um, that is the foundation for this entire documentary. So we see these athletes talking about how uncomfortable they were dressing up for photo shoots um, or rolling their eyes about, you know, about having to hide their sexual identity at the time. You can see that discomfort um, among the players about how they were packaged um, and how they were, how they basically had no choice. And they talk about that retrospectively. I think it was Robin Roberts, the longtime um, broadcaster, who said something that felt like a, a sentiment that was shared by at least some of the players that was like, when you're when you think that you are involved in something that's an important step or breakthrough, then you're willing to make those sacrifices, or you at least understand that you have to make those sacrifices. And she says, like, that's why I kind of understand and respect the choice that players made to kind of go along with this stuff. But that leads to, as you said, Joel, opportunities for abuse and, um, kind of screwed up power dynamics. And that is one of the things that's so interesting um, about the position that these women are in of being so dominant, so, I guess, popular and, and marketable, and yet having so little kind of power, mm-hmm. um, economic power. Um, they do say at various points that, you know, Vanderveer was talking about replacing some of the women, particularly Rebecca Lobo, after they'd been on the team for 10 months, just like kicking them off before the Olympics. And the players said, if, you know, Teresa Edwards, who is kind of the leader of that, that team said, if one of us had been kicked off, we all would have walked. Well, it never came to that. So we don't know if, um, if, if they would have done it, but I, I think they did feel a kind of collective power. And there's again, this question of like, was Tara Vanderveer being a kind of evil genius and getting them all to hate her so that they would bond together? Mm. Or was she just being a dick? And it seemed like she was just being a dick. Um, and well, the, I mean, the, it's pretty clear, right? Because Rebecca Lobo, like even today, still harbors, it seems like a lot of animosity for Tara Vanderveer, right? Like she says, mm-hmm. who does that? I mean, she's, you know, the way about the way that she was treated. Right. And Gina Oriana yeah. is interviewed here and clearly is throwing shade at Tara Vanderveer, too. And actually, a good analog here is Bobby Knight in the 1984 Olympics. Mm-hmm. And it's like that was a, a period when it was still amateur men's players, quote unquote, amateur players, no NBA players. And so he kind of exercised, he did his Bobby Knight thing and was abusive and players hated it and they won. The gold medal. And the question is... He cut Charles yeah. Barkley from the 84 Olympics team because he didn't mm-hmm. like him, basically. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. The story that's told, which I'm 100% sure is true, is that, like, he just did it to show that he was Bobby Knight and he ran he ran the show. And the question is always, like, do you need to do that stuff? It's sort of like mm-hmm. Michael Jordan in The Last Dance, too. Mm-hmm. Um, do you need to do that stuff 
uh, to win, or do you win and also you did that stuff? And it seems like this team was clearly good enough that a coach who actually cared about her players' emotional well-being would have gotten the same results. Sorry, one last thing, Stefan. 500 hours of never-before-seen footage. Two thoughts on that. Number one, what is the deal with documentaries where there's like 500 <laughs> hours of unseen footage and they just never use it? Like, what's the point of sending <laughs> this cam- these camera crews around with people for 500 hours and just like, when I say nobody has seen this footage in the last 25 years, that's the absolute truth. Well, what what was their plan? So you're just like throwing money down the drain. The other, and then well, the, the last point, <laughs> the last point, and then I'll shut up, is I was actually a little bit disappointed that they didn't have more footage that showed the conflict. And all the Tara Vanderveer footage they had was just like her saying, like, run it again. Like, it, she didn't seem like, crazy and tyrannical in the footage, nor were that nor was there much from the time about players kind of complaining. Um, and you would think that if they had all access in 500 hours, there would have you would have been able to see that conflict a little bit more in the archive rather than just hearing players talk about it retrospectively. Maybe that's naive. Maybe like that's maybe the, not, maybe the women didn't feel empowered to do that. Maybe they were afraid to even, you know, even they were so on guard when the camera was around that maybe they weren't going to disappear. I'm sure that's true. Yeah, I'm you know? sure that's true. Um, and as to the first point about the footage, it kind of belies the, you know, going back to the, you know, well, $50,000, we didn't have that much money. Well, you had enough money to send a camera crew <laughs> to follow them around for a year. Maybe you could have spent that on the players themselves. Um, what I found really interesting, Joel, also, is just how, you know, again, hindsight, um, looking back at how these things evolve, you know, how Nike is growing in those five years leading up to those Olympics, how Nike is decides to, you know, that swoops and swoosh kind of sound alike. So we're going to give Cheryl Swoops a contract after that um, NCAA final, how fans start going to UConn games. And the the cynic in me says that, well, the NBA purely did this as a way to test the waters, and it really wasn't about empowering the women and making sure that this team is good enough to win the gold medal because they probably could have done that with a three-month training camp or a two-month training camp. Um, but it really was about using them and putting them in coach and putting them up in shitty hotel rooms as a way to kick the tires on whether there was enough interest and whether they were that good that there might be a market to create a league and attract fans after the Olympics. Yeah, it's interesting because that time in my life is like a real jumble. And so I I could not keep up with, oh, Cheryl Swoops had won a national championship. Um, They started up the Dream Team. Uh, you know, Don Staley and Rebecca Lobo appear on the Martin show in 1996. And I'm like, when did all this happen? So, like, all this stuff is sort of happening organically around the same time. And Nike is a, the center of it. And in fact, it's funny you brought up Nike because in the next segment, Nike turns 50 and we're going to talk about it. In this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to wrap up the finals a little bit, the Warriors won, um, and we're going to talk about Steph Curry's legacy, or at least talk about people talking about Steph Curry's legacy and why legacy talk is so rampant. 
Um, if you want to hear that, you need to be a Slate Plus member. You get bonus segments on this and other Slate shows. You also get ad-free shows and a bunch of other stuff. It's a good deal. You should try it. You'll like it. Slate.com slash Hangout Plus. That's Slate.com slash Hangout Plus. Nike has begun celebrating its 50th anniversary. According to the company, on May 1st, 1972, the Japanese shoe brand Onitsuka Tiger ended its distribution contract with Blue Ribbon Sports, which had been founded by Phil Knight and Oregon track coach Bill Bowerman. But Nike also marked its golden anniversary in 2014 because Blue Ribbon Sports was started in 1964. And since the name Nike and the swoosh came into existence in 1971. The company celebrated a half century last year, too. All of which seems like predictable behavior for a brand that, since signing Michael Jordan in 1986, has dictated the terms of its commerce, flooding the world with its iconography, its athletes, and its slogans telling us not only what to wear on courts and fields and off, but also how to think and act. As New York Times fashion critic Vanessa Friedman wrote in a long essay last week, Nike has become part of the root system that underlies the culture and not just sneaker culture. I've always tended to consider Nike and its history first for its aggressive takeover of the basketball business, pro, college, and youth, and how the company carefully built and sustained an image as a renegade, even when it wasn't one anymore. Joel, how central was Nike to you growing up? You and Josh came of age with the brand. You were little kids when those Mars Blackman and Michael Jordan commercials debuted. I had nothing that cool in the 1970s. Yeah, so one odd thing about me as a kid, or maybe it wasn't, is that I wasn't necessarily a huge Michael Jordan or Chicago Bulls fan. Um, and my, my, now I might recommend uh, listening to The Last Last Dance, a special episode of uh, <laughs> Hang Up and Listen that we did about Michael Jordan. But no, I, I was not you know, all that moved by Michael Jordan. And in fact, I might say I was more of a fan of Spike Lee than Michael Jordan uh, in my teenage years. And some of that is because, you know, maybe this was a generation ago. I was a Houston Rockets fan first and then a Western Conference fan. Like, that's something I feel like old people do. You root for the teams in your conference or whatever. Um, but I could appreciate Michael's greatness. And I understood that he was a phenom and emblematic of cool. But... um in your notes that you used to prepare for this segment, Stefan, you, you pointed out a 1992 interview with Phil Knight in the Harvard Business Review. And he said something that Nike's biggest breakthrough was not about shoes. It's it that they came to the realization that they weren't just selling sneakers. And then a light came on in my, in my head because I remember that when I really became obsessed with Nike is when they signed these sponsorship deals with the University of Michigan and the University of North Carolina in the early 90s. And I was all about that shit. So like that, that syncs up with like the Fab Five. That syncs up with um, you know some of the cooler Michigan teams. Like you know Michigan was, Michigan used to be kids. It used to be a really cool football program. Sorry, BML, but you know they used to be like nationally competitive in a way that they aren't necessarily now. And I just loved all that stuff. And I could not get enough of wearing things that had checks on them and uniforms and jackets and wristbands and all that other shit. So. Um, that's 
kind of how I came to be like the a Nike head. And it really was a, a marker of status as a kid, even more so, I would say, than like wearing Jordans. Um, just having like the, the freshest Nike fit or T-shirt or whatever piece of apparel. Um, that's how it was, at least for me and my friends when I was coming up in the early 90s. But Josh, was that was that true, a state over for you in uh, New Orleans? <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, BML is Ben Mathis Lilly, our resident Michigan fan here at Slate, for people that didn't catch that reference. Um, number two, I guess the thing that came to my mind in hearing your introduction, Stefan, is that Joel and I came of age when Nike was kind of already Nike, like all this like blue ribbon sports stuff and the like Steve Prefontaine running shoe company Nike was just like not really in my consciousness. I did have this sort of like relationship with the Air Jordans, I guess, because my dad had like the first pair of Jordans and they were like in the garage kind of like flaking off. He didn't really preserve their value. Um, the the like red and black stuff was like flaking out of it out of them, but I thought that was really cool. And really, it was the Jordan stuff for me, Joel, as opposed to the the Michigan and Carolina stuff. Like I, in like a very kind of like normal like young kid obsessed with sports sort of way, I was like Mars Blackman, Michael Jordan basketball, he can jump high, it's got to be the shoes, dunk contest, like all of that was very cool. And um, I, I don't know if fell prey is a little bit more like, makes it sound more nefarious <laughs> than it is, but like all that marketing stuff mm-hmm. worked on me. I'm no different than like billions of, of other people who, um, who consumed all of that stuff. But it is interesting, Stefan, to think back to a period when Nike wasn't Nike yet and when Nike was kind of becoming Nike and so yeah what was it like for you like to a like not be in that world and b to just kind of like watch it happen as a more sentient adult yeah I mean it didn't exist for me junior high school high school um, it really wasn't until I was in college that I was even sort of aware of Nike as an entity as a force which dovetailed with Michael Jordan's arrival. Um, you know, Jordan, and I think this is interesting reading some of the the stories about not just this anniversary, but the emergence of Nike as a marketing behemoth, were how the Spike Lee, Mars Blackman, Michael Jordan ads helped Jordan as much as they helped Nike, that they were part of Michael Jordan's coming out as a multimedia superstar that, you know, Michael Jordan didn't win an NBA championship for six years, right? I mean, the Mars first Mars Blackman ad was 1986, which was a couple years into his career. I mean, maybe we should listen to the first one um, to sort of jog our memories about what these were. Do you know who the best playing game is? Me, Mars Blackman. And I'm way above the rim, demonstrating some serious hang time. Very serious. Do you know how I get up for my game? Do you know, do you know, do you know? That's right, Air Jordan, Air Jordan, Air Jordan. Mike, what's up? Oh, m- money, money, why you wanna do that to me? Why you leave me hanging? Come on, I got it. Oh, Mike, man, that's cold. Yeah, man, that just brings back like 
just a lot of fun memories of youth, um, like the discovery of Spike and Michael Jordan at sort of the same time. Um, yeah, which came first for you? Do you think, uh, Joel? Had you seen She's Got to Have It, or oh, was yeah. Mars Blackman introduced to you by the Nike commercials? I should say that yeah, my parents were very permissive in the things I was allowed to watch as a kid. Uh, there wasn't much, there weren't many restrictions on me, so I did see She's Got to Have It um, when I was a little kid, and so. Some of those things kind of, you know, I could see the the cross-references between the Mars Blackman and the Nike ad and then, you know, the, the, the character he played and She's Gotta Have It. So, yeah, man, I think that's how it came to me first. Um, I mean, I knew who Michael Jordan was, but he wasn't quite the sensation that he would become. I mean, in the late 80s, like, they didn't air basketball on TV like that all the time, right? Like, it wasn't as national of a, a broadcast as it was. And then, it, you know, the Bulls didn't become nationally relevant until, like, the late 80s, early 90s. Um, but I, I, I'm thinking back to what you said that, you know, Josh, about how, you know, Nike was always there, right? Like growing up. But maybe, maybe I'm a couple years older than you, but I think it actually is a little bit different because I think when I think back to the mid 80s, I came up with My Adidas by, you know, Run DMC in 1986. Um, you know, the Converse, you know, the, the Chuck Taylors, like those were really popular shoes when I was in elementary school, like wearing Chuck Taylors and all the different colors or whatever. Even Ruse uh, that had zippers. I think Walter Payton, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, sponsored those. And they, they were like a little tennis shoe that had a zipper on them. You could put coins in, in them. And that seemed really cool. Um, what and, about L.A. Gear and British Knights? L.A. Gear, British Knights. Yo, look, those really had, the L.A. Gear had like lights on them. There was the Reebok with the pump it up joints, you know, um, the D Brown indoor. So there was a moment when Nike was sort of in the crowd and then all of a sudden it emerged. And I, I obviously Michael Jordan played a huge role in that. But I really do think that like getting into the apparel and getting into the branding and then the just, you know, the, the just do it. And we have talked about the dream team. And I think that had a lot to do with it too. Just like a lot of the branding around that and that team helped Nike to sort of uh, burst from the pack and then sort of take over from there. Because after the after the early 90s, it was never another question. Wait, Joel, about, wasn't the story there that that was Reebok and Jordan covered up the Reebok logo? It wasn't, Nike right. wasn't involved with the Dream Team? Yeah, but I, I feel like the reason that was a story was because Nike was encroaching on Reebok's territory. You know what I mean? Like, I, it, at least in my memory of it. Like, I don't think no, no, anybody... I think that's right. And I think, I think we forget... Yeah because it's refracted through history now, just how much of an outsider Nike was mm -hmm. in the official suites of leagues and international federations. I did a story from the World Cup in 1998 about how Nike was trying to break into international soccer and they had literally, they, you know, they couldn't do anything within a perimeter around Paris. So they had set up this sort of underground like soccer you know, a Nike uh, display place where kids could go kick a ball and get some free swag and whatnot. And you, you, you know, that was the brand. And what I think is interesting, like the outsider part, and what I think is interesting about how Nike has evolved, it's like you mentioned all those other, those other brands, Josh and Joel, from your childhoods, and none of them had any impact. And in the ephemeral world of sports brands and commercial fashion, Nike's success really is kind of remarkable. Um, you know, I think in, in that piece in the New York Times, Vanessa Friedman says that Nike stands alone with Apple in the pantheon of American brands that have taken over the world in the last 50 years. 
Yeah, I thought the Apple comparison was really interesting. Yeah. And she also had this really good point about how Nike, and I'm quoting here, can toggle from Nigel Houston, the skateboarder, to Forrest Gump, Mia Hamm to Lost in Translation, Kobe Bryant to The Breakfast Club, Naomi Osaka to Back to the Future, um, and then also mentions Serena Williams at the Met Gala, Colin Kaepernick after he took a knee during the national anthem. And the thing about Nike that makes its corporate success, I think, such a achievement, I guess, is that so much of it is about marketing. Mm-hmm. Is that when you distinguish between Nike and Under Armour and Reebok and Adidas and Asics and the other brands that we mentioned, um, I mean, people who are more kind of connoisseurs of of fashion and in function than I am might have a brand preference. But like, it's nowhere near the distinction of like an Apple product versus like when the first iPod came out and how the other standalone music players are just trash (laughs) or like the difference between iPhone and Android. Like there's legitimate, I mean, people have disagreements, but there's like legitimate differences between those products or between a Mac and a, a PC. It's not all aesthetics, although a lot of Apple fandom is around aesthetics, but with Nike, it seems like it's, I don't, I don't want to say all, but it's mostly aesthetics. Mm-hmm. It's mostly aesthetics and brand image and sloganeering. Which and has so, allowed it to like get into the technology part, like the Vaporfly running shoe and, you know, other things that they now have the, the money to invest in, which obviously they invest you know, billions of dollars in the technology of their equipment. Right. It, it's, it, it really does say something. And I think a lot of this stems from basketball culture, right? Um, that a lot of Nike's dominance, even though it was founded by like runners, like people that did track, um, that basketball culture has a lot to do with it and its staying power. Because in the late nineties and early two thousands, there probably wasn't a more, uh, an athlete that resonated more with like street culture than maybe Allen Iverson, right? And he was with Reebok and they had these cool mm-hmm. ads like him and uh, this rapper named Jada Kiss. And, you know, all this, like, hip-hop-infused stuff, and Adidas later did it with Tracy McGrady and others, and it still didn't really seem to make much of a dent. And, in fact, I just remember by 96, like, we're talking about a, a, a relatively short amount of time that Nike takes it all over. But by 96, I went to TCU, and we were sponsored on the football team by Reebok. And it was already sort of like a marker that, oh, you're not big-time. Like, if you, if you were a big-time school, you had the Nike check on your uniform, not the Reebok shit. And like, I don't know how Nike, I mean, obviously it has to be branding and it has to be like this affiliation with this idea of cool or whatever, because I mean, product for product, I mean, I really have not noticed that big of a difference. Like maybe there are people out there that, that, that could speak to that, but I just didn't, I just didn't see that, but they just, you know, totally dominated the market. And it doesn't make, to me, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, but for the fact that marketing, right? I mean, the best example from the past five to 10 years of like how this works and doesn't work was the ball family, big baller brand (laughs) trying to create a brand. I mean, it's, it's funny, but like, is it that ridiculous? Is it that more, much more ridiculous than like Nike being like a running shoe company and then like becoming the like coolest product in America, like that a, a family of like great basketball players would create a product and people uh, like, it doesn't seem absurd to think that that might succeed, but like 
in practice, it was ridiculous. And it was mocked and seen as like a trash product and like the most kind of thirsty and uncool thing that basically has ever existed. Um, and it just shows what a kind of difficult task it was. And maybe it's just become more difficult because Nike is now this behemoth that nobody can challenge. Um, but in Under Armour, I guess, sort of the proof of that, right? That Under Armour tried to like encroach upon their territory and seemed that they were going to like have this moment where they were going to take over. And all of a sudden, I mean, that's, that kind of went away. That threat seems to have receded already, right? And it's, you know, it's worth pointing out too that Nike had reached this pinnacle. You know, this is a $44 billion company now, despite going through what for other companies, maybe smaller companies, maybe less nimble companies in terms of marketing and media, could have been fatal. The sweatshop scandals in the 1990s, um, the more recently treatment, it's, it's poor treatment of female athletes under contract. I mean, there have been scandals, corporate-type scandals that have, that have hit Nike, but they've been pretty Teflon because of the ingrained power of this brand. Yeah, it's a great point. And it is really an interesting hypothetical to think about what would have happened to both Nike and Jordan if they hadn't found each other. One thing I was thinking about um, as we were prepping for this segment, Magic and Bird were associated with with Converse, right? That had, there was a campaign and whatever. It, it didn't seem to do much to change the arc of their lives or careers or the arc of Converse. But I was wondering if Dr. J had come around at the moment when mm. in the eighties, when like kind of marketing and basketball and all this stuff were, were converging. Like if that had been Dr. J instead of Jordan, mm -hmm. would we all be talking about docs or J's or whatever, whatever the hypothetical name of the shoe would be? What do you think, Joel? Yeah. I mean, because I mean, like it has to be somebody like that athletic and transcendent and like who had done things that different. Yeah. Right. I can't compare the two because obviously, you know, Jordan comes later. But yeah, man, Dr. J was so cool. Like already by the time I was a little kid, like it was understood by an older generation of fan that Dr. J was that dude. But I c came to him as he was sort of older and a little more groundbound. So yeah, I mean, obviously a lot of this is timing. I would, I, I do wonder if Dr. J could have been that guy because it's not like, again, we, you know, you listen to that commercial with Mars Blackman, they didn't even give Michael Jordan lines in a lot of these early advertisements because he was just sort of, you know, wouldn't he was a, he was a country and he was a country boy. He had an accent, like he still had to kind of grow into like this picture of cool. Um, so it's not like he had like this ingrained charisma. He was just a great player who had this flair for playing. But Dr. J was not that dude. Like Dr. J was, you know, like legitimately a cool motherfucker. You know what I mean? So maybe it would have. No, and I can and I can bring it bringing it back to our childhoods. Dr. J was all that when yeah. I was, you know, a preteen um, and a sort of elementary, middle school, most impressionable in terms of sports and marketing. But there wasn't the way to tap into that. Nobody had figured it out yet. Um, so I do think, you know, it could have been Dr. J if someone had the prescience and the money and the power and the, 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 the commercial production skills in the eight in the seventies to have turned him into what Michael Jordan would become because the parallel I think 
in terms of their appeal, because of their ability, because of their verticality, because of the things they could do with a basketball on the way to the hoop, those were the same for mm-hmm. kids who were watching Dr. J in the 70s and then watching Michael Jordan, you know, 10 or 12 years later. You know, I guess uh, Nike really should uh, thank Dolores Jordan because, you know, the, the the story there is that Michael Jordan really wanted to sign with Adidas and did not want to sign with mm-hmm. Nike. But he went in, his, mo- his mother said, no, you promised to take that meeting with Nike. Go ahead and do it. And I guess from there, history was made. But um, I, I, I think, you know, to kind of close off on this, I mean, I think that it's clear that Jordan benefited a lot more from Nike. Well, is that? I don't know. Is that fair? I shouldn't say it like that. I don't know. You guys are looking at me suspiciously as I said that as well. I don't I think, think this was completely I symbiotic. I think it was completely symbiotic and it catapulted the two of them. And what are we now, 35 years plus since the first Spike Lee, Michael Jordan, Mars Blackman Nike commercial? And what did Nike choose to promote its 50th anniversary? A four and a half minute video produced by Spike Lee starring Mars Blackman um, and a two and a half minute version that you can also watch if you don't have time. Well, let's just admit that Michael Jordan should not have won that dunk contest over Dominique Wilkins at least, okay? (laughs) Great, great place to end the segment. Now it is time for Afterballs, sponsored as always by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. Um, back to Dream On, the uh, women's basketball documentary. A lot of um, players uh, that I didn't really know much about um, before this documentary. And the one that I wanted to highlight here was Carla McGee, who went to Tennessee, inside player, really good rebounder. For this team and um, a lot of the players on her own team on that 1996 team didn't know the severity of a car accident she'd had while in Tennessee. Um, they actually had footage from Knoxville Television. It looked extremely bad. Mm. She had a hole in her forehead, I think they described, broke every bone in her face, um, had to relearn how to walk, to run, to play basketball, was back as a starter at Tennessee within a year and then made this team as kind of an unheralded player. Um, she is now a coach. She's at um, the university of Nevada. And as with so many of these players, and uh, I'm sure you guys would agree, incredibly engaging. She was maybe one of the, my, my favorite talking head in the doc, just like a really fun. She was so fun. Personality. Yeah. I briefly thought, by the way, that she was JaVale McGee's mom, because I know that JaVale McGee's mom played basketball. That's Pam McGee, I That's believe. Pam McGee. Yeah, not uh, – so anyway. But still enthused to hear from her nonetheless. Um, had a long career playing internationally, played in the ABL for the Atlanta Glory, played in the WNBA for the Orlando Miracle. So has been a, a kind of a lot of these key moments in women's basketball history. So Carla McGee, uh, we honor you today. Stefan, what is your Carla McGee? 
With a few seconds left in Game 6 of the NBA Finals, Steph Curry walked to the baseline and embraced his father, Dell. It was a big, long squeeze that didn't end until the final horn when an emotional Steph knelt on the court and cried. Really sweet father-son moment. Dell seemed incredibly happy. Here's Steph talking to ESPN's Lisa Salters after the game. It looks like you shared a, a special moment with your dad. What was he saying to you? He was just proud. I mean, uh, he played 60 years in the league and, you know, we get to share all these experiences together. So he was just proud of me. Congratulations to you, Steph. You're a champion again. Thank you. Thank you. Dell was proud. Of course he was proud. What parent doesn't want their child to surpass them? But I also wondered, for reasons I'll get to in a minute, whether every time Steph Curry wins a title or an award, there isn't just a little voice inside Dell Curry's head saying, God damn, son, that should have or could have been me. Del Curry had a great career. As Steph said, Del played 16 seasons in the league. Like Steph, he was a first-round pick. Like Steph, he could bomb, sinking more than 40% of his three-point attempts, 1,245 in all. Del made 84% of his free throws and averaged 12 points a game. He was the NBA's sixth man of the year in 1994. When he retired in 2002, he was the Hornets' all-time leading scorer. But the son, obviously, has eclipsed the father in every way. Steph was taken eighth in the draft to Dell's 15th. Steph has made 43% of his threes, an NBA record 3,117 and counting. Steph has made 91% of his free throws and averaged twice as many points per game as his dad. Dell's sixth man is the only award listed on his basketball reference page. Steph's got 11, eight-time All-Star, eight-time All-NBA, two-time MVP, two-time scoring champ, four rings, 75th anniversary team, etc., etc. In 2015, after Steph won his first title, the NBA produced a two-and-a-half-minute video titled Steph and Del Curry Share Special NBA Bond on Father's Day. Violins, twinkly piano, the works. Here's Steph answering a question about one of the many things he's enjoyed that his father didn't. Steph, your dad never won a championship. Can you just talk about how special that is to share this with him? I can't be more proud of of him as a father um, and, a, and a role model example for me through this whole journey. So I'm hoping making him proud. So touching. But if 25 years ago, when nine-year-old Steph was jacking up two-handed heaves on NBA practice courts with his father, if the ghost of NBA future had told Dell his boy would win two MVPs and four rings, would Dell have replied, you know what, how about you give me one of each and the kid can have the rest? Was Bobby Bonds, amazing player, 530-30 seasons, second player to hit 300 homers and steal 300 bags, ever even a tiny bit like, son, if I had what you had, the money, the travel ball, the training, a big leaguer's free expertise, they'd be buffing my bust in Cooperstown, and at least one of us wouldn't have screwed up and made it in. What about Archie Manning, Josh? 13 NFL seasons, threw for almost 24,000 yards, one of the first dual-threat QBs. Would he have prospectively swapped a couple of Peyton's five MVPs or one of Eli's two Super Bowls to flip his 35-101 and 101 record with the Saints, sacrificed, say, 10,000 of Peyton's 71,940 passing yards to have played in one playoff game? 
I can now report what it feels like to have your kid be better than you at the thing you love and do pretty well. I've occasionally mentioned on here that my daughter plays Scrabble too. Well, Chloe's 19 now, almost 20, and last month she went to Montreal for a tournament, her first without me, went nine and five against strong players, and officially passed me in rating by one point, 1676 to 1675. I knew it was coming. For the last two years, Chloe's been putting in the work, studying daily, learning tens of thousands of words, playing and analyzing scores of games, and beating me on the regular. Committed, passionate, determined, and it doesn't hurt to have a sub-20 brain that can absorb and recall all those letter strings. The one-point ratings edge was a fun and fitting milestone. It didn't last long. Two weekends ago, we went to New Mexico for a big tournament. Two days, 18 games, a killer field including two former North American champs who I wrote about in Word Freak, and two other players in the top five in the rankings right now. Seated 15th out of 24, Chloe beat those four dudes and a bunch of other high experts, won nine in a row, and was in first place with a 12-4 record with two games left. It was insane. She lost the last two and finished fifth, but her rating climbed a ridiculous 124 points to an even 1,800, solidly expert and higher than my rating has ever been. She's the highest-rated woman under 40 in North America, and I'm confident will be the highest-rated woman, period, pretty soon. As for me, I went 9-9 nine and nine and gained two rating points, and while Scrabble is fluky and ratings go up and down and my career isn't over, let's be real, she's Steph, and I'm Dell after Steph broke the all-time threes record in December. And uh, just told me how proud I am, how much I love him. I, I'm going to know he worked hard. Had no idea anything like that would happen, uh, but uh, it shows you that hard work pays off, um, and he's not done. I mean, he's not going to rest on his laws. He still wants to win more titles. Uh, very happy for him, and it shows you that, uh, you know, as long as you work hard, he ain't going to happen. Me too, Dell. I'm proud. Very proud. Very, very proud. Couldn't be prouder. Basking in her glory. Can't wait to see what's next. Anything can happen. But what if I'd started competing when I was nine or had been able to train from the jump with software and websites or had a parent and coach like me? Unlike Dell in basketball, I can still chase my kid and scrabble. I can study more, play more, try harder. But I'm 59. My brain is getting softer. My ambition has long waned. My shortcomings as a player are well documented by me and aren't likely to change materially. And now, like Dell's, they're magnified by my kids' success. So all I can really hope for now is that Chloe will fulfill her role as the humble and generous child who knows she's far superior to, but remains grateful for and respectful of her dad, like Steph, after he won his first MVP award in 2015. Pops, you're the example of what a true professional is on and off the court. And to be able to follow in your footsteps, it, uh, it means a lot to me. Really proud of you know, what you were able to do in your career. And I don't take that for granted at all. Choking back tears, dramatic pause to compose himself, voice cracking. The script's right there for you, Chloe, when you win your first national championship. Wow. That really made me uh, also think think more highly of Steph. I like, caught up my throat a little bit. Him getting uh, caught up. Which there. Steph? Which Steph did it make you feel more more highly of? 
Well, uh, I mean, well, look, this is what I would say about you, St- Stefan, here. Um, <laughs> is not laying the foundation enough? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you, you laid the foundation. I mean, if she's better than you are and ever were going to be, then like, isn't that, isn't, don't you just take enough pride and like, you know what? It wouldn't have happened without me because I laid the foundation for you. I introduced you to this game. Is that not enough? Yeah, it's enough. I still wish I was better. Mm. Well, you were definitely smart in having one kid that's better Ooh. than you as opposed to having two kids. You could have had a Seth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're assuming that Seth is better than Dell was. I mean, maybe if I had a second kid, they never would have come close to me. And that's my question. The the thing that you left out here is you're just really laying it on thick about how the, the kids have all these advantages over the parent. <laughs> what about like the Pete Rose Jr. or Marcus Jordan types who have to spend their lives chasing their parents' glory and never come close to reaching but it? that's you're, an inverse situation. It. Those are the icons that they're chasing. You know, you're chasing... Del Curry, again, all due respect, great career, 16 years, lasted a long time, shot the shit out of the ball, but you're not chasing, you know, the the greatest of all time. And I think that's a different kind of pressure. Yeah. Um, well, you did Chloe a favor there, too, by not being that, uh, you know, Very not being true. the greatest Scrabble player Very ever. True. Uh, that's right. You know, much better. You didn't have to have a Jared Payton or, a, you know, a Bronny James, you know, like it's. It's okay. Well, I already put it, already consigning uh, Bronny to. We just got to be real about what's going to happen. There. I mean, come on. <laughs> we we really like to focus on making fun of Stefan. It's sort of uh, the highlight of what we do here. But that is really amazing what uh, Chloe accomplished Seriously. there. Um, so congratulations. Not that much to you, but mostly to her. That's amazing. Yeah, mostly we should bring to her. her on here. You know what? All to her. I was just, as Joel said, the facilitator. She's done all the work, <laughs> and I really am psyched for what she's done and, uh, and how much more she can still do. That's amazing, man. Congrats to you, Stefan. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go the extra, extra mile here and say, hey, man, you had something to do with it. Congrats to you as well. So. I appreciate that, Joel. That is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. And subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stephen Fences, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Now it is time for our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, and we will be the last podcast on Earth to tell you that the Golden State Warriors won the NBA championship. Remember that? It was like five days ago. Really? Last, uh, Thursday. Um, and Joel, a lot of the conversation after that series kind of extends from the conversation we had last week after Steph's Game 4, um, which I think it was you who said, um, or it was said on the on the podcast that will remember that game forever. Um, and so that leads to, he won four championships. Legacy talk. Is he in the top 10? Blah, 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 blah. And kind of very quickly, the actual particulars of the series get forgotten in service of this much larger conversation about the basketball universe. So just curious how you've taken all that stuff in in the last, I guess, a little less than a week since the finals ended. 
No, sure. It's really interesting because the game after that game, he played a terrible game. Like he didn't even score twenty points, um, and was sort of carried by a supporting cast. Um, didn't make a three. Five victory. Yeah, didn't make a three for the first time. For the first time, time in, in, in what two hundred something games. Yeah, and um, so yeah, I've I've just listened to a lot of this legacy talk, and even Steph has sort of indulged it a little bit by doing. Well, what else are they going to say now, or what are they going to say now from the championship parade that happened in town yesterday? And I guess he checked off the finals MVP thing, which was the one thing missing from his proverbial resume. The one thing missing from his proverbial resume. And you know what is interesting to me, and I, I just, I can throw this back at you all, but I always have sort of been like one series, one game doesn't tell us a lot about a player. Like whatever I thought about Steph Curry was sort of fixed before he came into this finals. It didn't matter if he played poorly, played extremely well. Like he was always going to be, you know, one of the best players I've ever seen. Um, but it's been interesting to me that, you know, I've watched a lot of FS1 and listened to a lot of podcasts or whatever in the wake of this. And there's been this top 10 talk and they're like, all of a sudden, Steph Curry has moved into the top 10 and, you know, he's surpassed Larry Bird or Kobe Bryant or whoever. And this is what I have to say about that. Isn't that stupid? Because we saw <laughs> Steph Curry and Kevin Durant on the same damn team at somewhere near their peak a few years ago. And we all knew that Kevin Durant was a better basketball player than Steph Curry, which is not an, which is not an insult to Steph Curry. Like Steph Curry is still one of the greatest shooter ever, one of the best players we've ever seen to suit up in a basketball game. But all of a sudden he wins a championship in a year against like, I mean, these Boston Celtics look like, let's not pretend that these were, they, that they beat the 86 Boston Celtics, right? They beat a Boston Celtics team. They can't even dribble really well. And all of a sudden, I'm supposed to believe because Steph Curry and the Warriors defeated that team that he's a better basketball player than Kevin Durant, which we know not to be true because we just saw it. They were the same team, and his teammate won finals MVP. And I just find that to be sort of outrageous. Like, it just, I don't know why it bothers me so much. But I'm like, <laughs> we don't does. have to do this. You're very, yeah. you're very bothered. <laughs> you also yeah. started your, your, your soliloquy there by saying this is all stupid, trying to decide if he's in the top 10 or not. And yet, yeah. <laughs> what well, I just I mean like whether or not he's in the top ten, top twenty, whatever, we know he's not better than Kevin Durant. We saw it, right? Am, am I wrong? Am I am I wrong to to, to be in, frustrated by this by this talk? You're not wrong. I think that um, the thing that Steph has going for him is that he made that team, right? Um, the whole team is kind of created around him and became a juggernaut because of him, both because what he can do tangibly and the kind of effect that he has on his teammates. And we just have never seen that. I don't think from a guy of his stature kind of height and weight. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so there's something just monumentally impressive about it. Right. Um, and the fact that, he was able to do what he did at 34. A single game doesn't change anything about our perception of him. But when you're talking about all-time greatness, longevity matters. And that's another thing, is that small guards don't age well. Mm -hmm. And so the ways in which he transcends the game, um, we can now like add multiple categories. Like he transcends what someone of his size can do. He transcends how anyone of any size should be able to shoot. And he distorts the game 
in a way that like we traditionally associate with somebody like Shaq or Giannis. Mm-hmm. Like there's a way in which he's more impressive than KD. Like his ability to do what he does is maybe more impressive. And maybe Stefan, what it is, is that there's nothing more transcendent or magical or transporting than watching him do what he does. And so maybe that is is what gets inside everybody's heads there's i mean there's always recency it's bias, the aesthetics so. of it and i think the aesthetics play a big part i mean it's like watching you know a whale which is graceful and cool to see cut through the ocean versus watching a pack of minnows in a foot of water at the edge of the beach um darting and you know and impossible to to catch he's a pack um, of minnows so i don't do minnows go in a pack i think they do <laughs> yeah um, so I think that, that that's part of it. And I think the other part that has helped to your point, Joel, is that I think Steph has been diminished a little bit because of having to play or having played with Durant for those years. Um, remember he did this before KD was on the Warriors. He did it while KD was on the mm-hmm. Warriors and now he's done it after KD was on the Warriors. Sure. Um, and I think that the, the doing it without somebody like KD in a year where, you know, Clay Thompson wasn't 100% the entire time, during which Draymond Green was as erratic as he can be. Um, and in a year when it required younger players to be nurtured and supported and rise up and get better, that's pretty overall impressive. Yeah, I, I agree. I just don't think there has to be this sort of historical revisionism, right? Like we saw Steph lead the league in scoring a couple years ago, you know, somewhere near his offensive apex. And they lost in the play-in game to Memphis, mm-hmm. right? Now, now, now his supporting cast gets healthier. Draymond's back. Klay Thompson's there. Andrew Wiggins has another year in the system. Um, and, and, and they're a little bit better. And the, the one thing that I would add, and I'm not, I, I promise I'm not trying to use this as an opportunity to denigrate Steph because I do think that he's great. Thank you so much for, for promising that. That's <laughs> yeah, very right. I just, that's I just very wanted to make sure. To us. Well, cause, you know, I live in the Bay Area and these Warriors fans are extremely sensitive about this sort of stuff. But <laughs> this is what I would say for any of the players that you could uh, consider to be among the greats, like the top 10, Mount Rushmore, whatever the hell you want to do. Has there ever been, a player is bad on defense as stuff is among that group. And if we agree that defense is half of the game, it, it's literally half of the game. Like, if you're not playing offense, you're playing on defense. And the other team uses you as an opportunity to find a weakness in its offensive attack. Can you truly say that that player is like one of, I mean, obviously he's one of the greats, but is he one of those greats? Is he Jordan? Whatever, all that other stuff. I, I know I sound like Mad Dog or somebody like that right now. I just I sound like Skip Bayless. But we're giving the members a, an opportunity to see what this show would be like as a sports uh, radio show. I think that's outrageous. Uh, it's uh, but I just how again, do you sleep? I, how do you sleep at night with know, with that tape? I'm being, I'm, me playing the role of Shannon Sharp, the goat. But no, you know, I just, I just, I just, I'm, I just, I'm just very frustrated by the narrative around it, and I think that we like. I guess the the bottom line here is that. There's an opportunity to just appreciate this stuff in the moment and just say that he's good. We don't have to compare anybody to anybody and just say, Steph is great on his own. He doesn't have to be better than Kobe. He doesn't have to be better than Akeem or Tim Duncan. He is in excellence in and of itself. But then it always has to go beyond this. Yeah, why aren't people focusing on the more kind of like present 
conversation, the more present and healthy conversations like Jason Tatum is trash. Like that's, that's really what everybody <laughs> needs to be focusing on is, is stuff, healthy, healthy sports, turnovers. Uh, sports takes like that. Zach Lowe, I thought made a good point on the defense thing, which you're, you're right, obviously Joel, but um, the reason that Steph has gotten hunted is because he's not, because he's the worst defender on a team full of unbelievably good defenders. It's not like he's being mm-hmm. hunted um, on, it's not like they're picking and choosing between like, should we go after him or should we go after like Peyton Pritchard or should we go like, there, there's yeah. not really anybody mm. else on that team. That doesn't that, ring that well to me. I mean, like, are we talking no, I mean, that Draymond and Clay Thompson are like Akeem Olajuwon great on defense or Tim Duncan great on defense because they're not, I mean. You're saying Draymond Green are, isn't an all-time great on defense? I mean, I think he is, but I mean, do you think he's as good as Akeem Olajuwon or, or Tim Duncan on defense? Like, do you think? I mean, like, he's clearly g- look. Good I'm sorry that we zero. don't. I'm sorry that we don't disagree with each other. All I'm saying <laughs> is is that Steph isn't bad on defense. He's just not um, as good, good as the other players on his team. Which means, yeah. and you're right, he's not a like a plus plus defender like you would hope at a top ten or top five all time <laughs> great would be. All right, let's go to the phones now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, enough. I'm enough sorry. of this. Enough I of drag, this. I dragged this down into Jim Rome Radio. Sorry about that. I I enjoyed it. Uh, thank you, Joel, and thank you, Slate Plus members. We'll be back with more next week.